As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdel-Jabbar. Hey, Danny. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm okay. I survived. You survived? What'd you survive? I, I survived. I survived my flood. Oh, yeah. The flood. That yeah. Flood. No, I had a flood in my apartment. It was not. It was not very fun. So... This is being recorded on Thursday, September 2nd. Yeah, September 2nd. And yesterday, Hurricane Ida, I guess later it became a tropical storm, right? It was downgraded. Mm-hmm. Yep. It came and made its way to New York City, uh, to the East Coast, to the tri-state area, and it pulverized us. Yep. It pulverized us with the most rain, I think, ever, right, in New York history. Yeah, man. Um, it, was, Central Park it, was, history. it was so bad that at least three inches of rain fell in just an hour in Central Park. And I, I know that like three inches probably doesn't sound like a lot, but if that rain were snow, it would be more than three feet of snow in an hour. And Central Park didn't even get the worst parts of the storm either. I think I think what's crazy is that this this, this is the same storm, right? Hurricane Ida that hit Louisiana as a Cat 4 hurricane like a couple days ago. And ironically, it hit on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, which was only a Cat 3 uh, hurricane. And, you know, obviously caused crazy amount of destruction. More, more than a million people were without power in Louisiana. Something like 40,000 uh, were in the dark uh, in Mississippi a couple days ago. Uh, and the damn thing just kept chugging along. Apparently, it's the fifth biggest storm to hit the mainland U.S., that had winds up to 150 miles an hour when it was a Cat 4. And it created freaking tornadoes, like in New Jersey, which is nuts. Um, and it, what's interesting about it is that despite the fact that it was stronger than Katrina at its start, it didn't kill as many people. Uh, Katrina killed about 1,800 people and obviously displaced tens of thousands. Um, but since then, we've like invested billions of dollars into the levee systems in Louisiana and other places, and apparently it seems to have worked out pretty well uh, against a bigger storm. Um, but here's to looking forward to that trillion-dollar infrastructure program. We're probably going to need it here in the Northeast. Um, but yeah, Ida, Ida did kill some people, though. Uh, not, not to underscore that. Uh, the numbers keep going up, too. It's really sad. Uh, it's something like 50 people have died between Virginia and New England, you know, 12 of them were in New York City and actually 23 in New Jersey alone, uh, including four people in a basement apartment in my hometown of Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was nuts. So I want to hear your story of like what 
you know how how you weathered the storm and then i'll tell you <laughs> i'll tell you my much more boring but funny story well my kitchen flooded so the what kitchen. happened was my kitchen flooded i did, did not even really aren't you I on the third really, floor i'm on the third floor my kitchen flooded but not because the water rose to the third floor it's because the rain um it just like pulverized through our roof because i live in a four-story Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm on the third floor of a Ford story of, of a Ford story of a, of a four story. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, somehow the rain was getting into the apartment above me and um, there was like massive uh, leakage going in from the apartment above me down to my apartment. So I hear my fiance scream like, oh, no, I'm like <laughs> oh, a mouse or something. I walk in there, and then there's just water dripping everywhere. Just like it's like if someone turned on a faucet. So I'm basically like taking pots and pans, and I'm trying to catch the water. <laughs> and I'm literally taking this water and I'm uh, pouring it into our sink. So it's like I'm in a sinking boat, and I do that. I'm doing this for like I don't know two and a half hours, almost three hours. Jesus, just like. Catching this water, I have like maybe like 10 pots because there's leaks everywhere. I live in an old apartment and um, like a million towels on the floor just to soak up as much water as I can. It was crazy. That's nuts, man. Well, yeah. I mean, at the very least, you know, you didn't get, you know, like totally flooded like like some of the folks that were in like these basement apartments and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah, like, man, I was videos. lucky. It was just in my kitchen. So, I mean, if you're going to pick a place to flood... Might as well be there. Right? It might as well be either the kitchen or the bathroom. Right. It, if it like hit my my bedroom or our living space and start getting yeah. my office or like over electronic appliances, then that would be that would Pain be no bueno. But I mean, the only damage that I have is that you know we're just gonna have to have someone paint over all the warped paint and you know probably put some drywall uh, to clog up these holes, but really wasn't that big of a deal we did so much mitigation like water mitigation that we were able to get out of it without major damage it mm-hmm. just took all night of like you know that's annoying plugging these holes up and catching this water with pots and pans yeah, man. um it was it was interesting but i got to show you these videos they're ridiculous i'd love to see them um but speaking of videos i actually got a couple of my own my f- boring but funny story was that i'm actually in a newer building and i'm on the sixth floor So, you know, I was in almost no danger of flooding whatsoever. And, uh, I mean, I knew that there was a storm coming. I obviously knew that it was raining and I knew it was raining hard, but you know, kind of in my little ivory tower that I'm sitting in here, I had no idea how bad it was. Didn't have the news on all day. I was working until pretty late that day too. And, you know, around eight o'clock at night, I get a text message from my brother, uh, like in a, in a thread with a bunch of my buddies from New Jersey. And he's like, hey, is everybody okay? And I'm like, yeah, man, why? <laughs> what do you mean? And he's like, the fucking storm. And then my other friend posts this video of his street, and it's just like this fucking river of water, like covering this street. And I, I like grew up in that area, and, and you know, yeah, like I can tell immediately how bad it was. And then my brother st- starts sending me some pictures. Literally, he lives near like one of those water runoff where the you know rainwater runs off a little canal or a dike or whatever they call them. Um, And that thing totally overflooded where the water level was above 
like standard sedan car level. Like there was just the very tip of a car. You can see his car, his wife's car got swept away. It's like gone. It was, they, they found it like a block and a half away, um, which was nuts. Totally totaled. Um, his basement's totally flooded, but uh, they had a lot of their stuff in, in, um, in like plastic buckets and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, even my mom was texting me today, this morning, she was like, oh, I was trying to get to work and like literally everything is a river. She couldn't even go to work. Um, super wild. And meanwhile, I'm sitting here, <laughs> none the wiser, <laughs> not even realizing that, that like all this catastrophe is happening, which is, is crazy. I feel like it's pretty emblematic of the last year that I've spent in this apartment building, which basically sucks me into here. <laughs> and I don't know what's going on in the outside world. Well, that was basically me during Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, me too. I slept through that one also. <laughs> so Hurricane Sandy, I had just moved to Manhattan, just out of college. And um, I lived in the Upper East Side. The Upper East Side was like the only place that was really spared major damage in the city or in the New York area. I mean, yep. the Upper East Side and there's some other neighborhoods in, in Manhattan that mm-hmm. really didn't get hit too hard. But... Mm-hmm. It was a, quite a pleasurable week off. And I feel really <laughs> bad about saying that because I know a mm-hmm. lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of people who passed away, sadly right. and, and tragically. Um, but a mm-hmm. lot of my friends, they were living in shit because they were, you know, most of my friends are from Long Island. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they lost power for a couple of weeks. They mm-hmm. were standing in line at like Starbucks to charge their phones. People were eating and killing each other over gas. Just it was just totally crazy. People were so, eating each other over gas. We survived, so yeah. that's we're that's good. all that matters. We're able to podcast another day. We're able to podcast another day. So um, I guess um, there's a lot to talk about today. First and foremost, the response that we got from our last episode with Matthew Ho has been excellent. If you guys haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and listen to it because it's um, really important. I guess to continue on the, the topic of Afghanistan, which we largely spoke about, the uh, the failures and the systemic lying in the national security state. You know, mm-hmm. everyone was lying about it. But I guess there's so much skepticism that's going on right now that no one really wants to take anything at face value. So ISIS-K. Here we you go. You heard that word? Yep, here we go. ISIS-K, it sounds kind of like a new COVID variant. <laughs> or cereal. Actually, I did think cereal the first time I heard it. Like, ISIS-K. Special K came to mind. They're great. <laughs> yeah. ISIS-K. It's the... It's, it's part of a healthy, balanced breakfast. It's the sugary, frosted brand of ISIS. <laughs> yeah, right. But on the interwebs... As soon as the word ISIS-K turned up in the mainstream, a lot of people were like, yeah, right, give me a break. This sounds like a bunch of bullshit. Like ISIS-K, you're telling me there's a new variant of ISIS now? (laughs) They're just making up variants of ISIS. How do they get to K? (laughs) Um, There's not even an ISIS. A, B, C, D, E, F, J, H, I, J. There's not even an (laughs) ISIS-J. Isn't it funny that yeah, I have to do that? Song Dude, I'm the, I'm the same exact my letters. Way. Not to go too crazy on a tangent. Um, 
ISIS K, it is a real thing. And I really don't blame people for reacting like this because I think I would have the same reaction if I um, hadn't read about them before. So the K, it stands for Khorasan. So Khorasan is a historical term for a region that includes Central Asia. So present day Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan. And um, they are pretty much a a relatively small and obscure offshoot of the Islamic State of of Iraq and Syria. So they're not the same guys as the people. Just well, if, if they're not the billion. same guys, why are they still ISIS though? Should it be like I don't know, ISISK? Just ISK? <laughs> well, ISIS is kind of you know our word for them, but mm-hmm. they're. They're not the same guys, obviously, as the guys in Iraq and Syria. They're not nearly as successful as they were ISIS in Iraq and Syria. They successfully created a caliphate for a while. This group has done no such thing. So, And they're much smaller as well. So, I mean, the level of people or the amount of people that I read, every single source seems to have a different estimate. But we're talking about like 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, maybe 5,000 people max. Like, it's not some looming uh, horde. But at the same time, they are a dangerous terrorist group. They right. they killed, I think at this point, it's what, 170 people, including, you know, 13, uh, you know, 12 Marines and, and one uh, Navy personnel. They, they uh, slaughtered viciously a lot of people mm-hmm. in that attack. They are violent and, you know, they are suicide bombing nut jobs now i'll be the first one to really admit i haven't really known about them for that long they haven't really been on my radar i'd be a phony liar if i said they were i learned about them last year and what got me thinking about them was this washington post article that was published in october of last year and um, it's titled our secret Taliban Air Force inside the clandestine U.S. campaign to help our longtime enemy defeat ISIS. And this article is all about how the U.S. was acting as the Taliban's air force. Hmm. So I have it. I have some quotes pulled up. I'm going to go through some of it, and I think you'll find some of this interesting. The U.S. military has been quietly helping the Taliban to weaken the Islamic State and its Konar stronghold. With the Taliban fighting the Islamic State in Konar, a peace deal is always going to require at least tacit U.S. Taliban cooperation against their mutual foe. In March, days after U.S. diplomats and Taliban representatives inked a withdrawal deal in Doha, General Frank McKenzie, the top U.S. commander for Afghanistan and the Middle East, told the House Armed Service Committee that the Taliban had received very limited support from us. Total air quotes on the very limited support from us, right? Yeah, very limited support from us. Yeah. (laughs) He declined to elaborate, and the form that support took has not been publicly revealed. But inside JSOC... The team working on this mission is jokingly known as the Taliban Air Force. As negotiators close in on their deal in Doha, 
Officers repurposed tools owned against the Taliban, Reaper drones, and an intelligence complex with nearly two decades of practice spying on Afghan guerrillas. Unwilling to communicate directly with the Taliban commanders, the task force force worked to divine where and how old foes needed help by listening to their communications. Hmm. Taliban units on the ground appeared willing to take the help, waiting to assault Islamic State positions until they heard and saw the explosions of bombs and hellfires. So you see where this is going? Yeah. So there's this kind of... Uh, they're not talking to each other, but they're definitely working. They're in sync. They're yeah. synced up, and they both both parties know exactly what's going on. It's kind of like when two animals, like, you know, that aren't necessarily, like, the same, and, you know, the, like, one of the animals does a thing, and the other animal is like, all right, I'm not going to eat you because I know that you're going to help me eat something else. And they kind of, like, work together, but they can't obviously talk to each other, you know? It's, it's like, like that. you know those uh those fish that like clean yeah. other fish or like the the yeah exactly it's the you know the little sucky things that go on the whale sharks you know yeah that's that's what i was talking about yeah or like the sea anemones and the clownfish you know there's a lot of stuff in the sea that does this stuff all right the konar operations may offer a glimpse of what lies ahead for the united states and afghanistan the outsourcing of what has been a core U.S. military mission, fighting the Islamic State in Al-Qaeda. Konar veterans I spoke with seemed realistic about the calculus, seeing this as necessary to keeping U.S. troops out of harm's way. I don't think Americans should be on the ground in firefights with the Taliban, and we need somebody fighting ISIS, so I don't see a problem with it. That doesn't mean I want to break bread with them said Jason Dempsey, a retired Army lieutenant colonel who fought in Konar in 2009. Emotionally, it's hard, partly because we spent nearly 20 years conflating al-Qaeda with the Taliban, but the Taliban didn't strike the United States on 9-11. Okay, so it's like a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of backtracking here, right? They're like, hey, 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 wait. We're, we're only helping the Taliban because we're, they're helping us kill ISIS, and we really hate ISIS. And uh, don't, don't worry about that whole 20 years ago when we were saying that al-Qaeda and the Taliban were the same thing. That, that wasn't a thing. Here's the thing about this ISIS-K group. I don't really know how much of the information about these guys is really reliable. You know, they were founded sometime between 2014 and, and uh, 2015 by disaffected Pakistani Taliban. So some Pakistani Taliban commanders, they broke away from the TTP after the, the Pakistani army uh, launched this massive military operation against the uh, northwestern tribal regions of Pakistan. So um, back in 2014, you know, the, there was a lot of terrorist attacks in Pakistan by these hardline groups, and they had this massive counterinsurgency um, mm-hmm. close to the border of of uh, Afghanistan and they pushed a lot of militants into Afghanistan right. and a lot of them uh, fled and these are the groups that essentially become the Islamic State's local franchise in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan now um, as far as like sources the most extensive report I found on them is from 
um, the Afghan Analyst Network. According to local residents, the first groups of Pakistani militants arrived in Nangarhar from following an operation by the Pakistani army that year. They moved into Afghanistan, often with their families, apparently to flee military operations by the Pakistani army. Calling themselves refugees in search of shelter, they invoked support from the local communities in Nangarhar, who deemed it their moral obligation to extend a helping hand to their Pashtun brothers escaping violence in their hometowns. Hmm. So I guess, you know, what ends up happening is gradually these refugees, many of them were oppressed civilians, but many of them were not just oppressed civilians who were in pursuit of humanitarian aid. Hmm. They started pledging allegiances to Pakistani militant groups. Right. Now, here, I'm going to go on with this report, and, and I would want to confirm this part of it. Hoping to use them against Pakistan, the Afghan government started to woo some of these fighters. Now, okay, that's interesting. What's What's funny about this is that we know that the, we know the vice versa to be true. So, um, Pakistani intelligence tacitly supports the Afghan Taliban. So, I mean, like I know we've talked about this a bunch, but like, why, why, why does Pakistan support the Taliban specifically? Well, for one, Pakistan has an ideological interest in the Taliban. Pakistan was created as a Muslim nation, and Islam was the glue <coughs> that was supposed to hold the country together. I mean, Pakistan has a lot of different ethnic and, and uh, linguistic identities. Just like Afghanistan. Just like Afghanistan. Um there, for example, there's a little country called uh, Bangladesh. Right. Bangladesh was formerly part of Pakistan, but the Bengali-speaking community broke away. So that loss made the Pakistani government paranoid about their Western territories. With, um, you know, the, the reason why they're paranoid about that is because in the West there's very large uh, Pashtun-speaking populations. So that's why Pakistan established all these madrasas in these territories mm -hmm. to teach this strict brand of Islam in the hopes that Islamic nationalism would suppress Pashtun nationalism. And, um, you know, if you don't recognize, recognize the Duran line, then you have a, a Pashtunistan in the middle of both Afghanistan and Pakistan. Because well, a, a lot of lot people like don't even really, you know— they don't really care about these borders. Right. And it sounds a lot to me like like uh, the Kurdistan issue. Yeah. It's it's very similar. This group that's kind of split between these borders um, drawn by the British. Um, Fucking British. Yeah. So um, the Pakistani government believes that the Taliban's ideology, it emphasizes... Islam over Pashtun identity. So that's why they support the Taliban mm -hmm. because they rather have a you know cohesive state that is uh that that doesn't um that's not ethnocentric. It's not an ethno state mm -hmm. or it doesn't have like these ethnic movements because now I mean even now the Taliban 
they're kind of different than they were before. They're not as like chauvinistic about being Pashtuns. Like before, back in the '90s, you know, most Taliban were Pashtuns. Right. The Taliban was kind of, was the the political representation for the plurality Pashtun population. Now the there's like a lot of different ethnic groups that are allowed to be in the Taliban. They're right, they're more of like more, a Islamist or Islamic. Yeah, and that of. was their strategy. You know, it was they made it a more a pan-Islamic movement rather than a, a you know an ethnic Pashtun movement. Uh, mm-hmm. It just made it more inclusive. And you know, we were speaking to Matt Ho right. about how, this yesterday. How progressive I, of them. It led to them getting more support throughout the country. Let's just mm-hmm. put it that way. Now, on the flip side, the Pakistani government, while they support the Afghan Taliban, they don't support the Pakistani Taliban because it's a threat to their government. It's a threat to their monopoly on violence. You know, they don't want that movement in their state. In fact, one of the first things that the Pakistanis did after you know the Taliban recently um, took the country is that they went over to the Taliban and they gave them a list of members of the Pakistani Taliban, the TTP. So they gave them this list of members and they gave it to the, to the Afghan Taliban, now the new government of Afghanistan. And they said, hey, here's a list of guys we want you to take out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they may even be holding that over their head before they officially recognize the Taliban because they mm-hmm. haven't yet. Or they or they're waiting for China. I think I think a lot of countries are waiting to see what China does before officially saying, Oh yeah, we recognize the state. Right. So a lot of countries in our, are in weird positions. Um, but going back to this report, this report goes on to say that the Afghan government support there was an open secret. Hmm. And and it goes on to say in, in off the record conversations with the AAN government officials have verified this type of relation between segments of the Pakistani militants and the NDS, as have pro-governmental tribal elders and politicians in Jalabad. The NDS is the, well, was the Afghan uh, um, CIA, their intelligence group. The NDS, these sources claimed, expected their protégés to fight against the Pakistani government. It also saw a role for them to fight, or at least stand, as a bulwark against the Afghan Taliban. See following this? Yeah, they're kind of trying to play the play the same group the other way. I was reading your favorite um, publication, Moon of Alabama. Okay. <laughs> and they were saying, well, you know, um, the NDS is basically the CIA. So, you know, since the NDS had a relationship with these hardliners before, they must be responsible for the, the bombing during the evacuation. Leave it up to Moon of Alabama to, to tie together points that shouldn't be tied. I mean, I mean. Hey, I mean, out of every hundred things. Are you confident things in saying that they, that's not true? Well, I don't know. Out of every hundred things that they say, about one of them turns out to be right. So maybe this one might be that one. Who knows? They say some pretty weird shit, though. So um, this goes on to say how, um, you know, splits started to emerge in the ranks of the TTP uh, following their leader's death. And these militants, they ended up turning to their local warlords. Um, But all right, I'm going to read again. 
The chain of command with the TTP center, as well as relations with local Afghan Taliban, were strained by the increasingly predatory behavior of these militants to regularly engage in money extortion, kidnappings, and ransom taking, targeting both Afghans and Pakistanis. They would send messages to actual or presumed British sympathizers of the Afghan Taliban and of the TTP in Pakistan, Pakistani and Afghan towns, asking them for huge amounts of money. If the recipients failed to heed that request, they would be threatened. I'm not going to read the entire report, but there's this huge section on like, you know, they were just engaging in a lot of extortion and criminal activity. So like they were doing things like setting up checkpoints, kidnapping people, um, holding ransom money, like all this really just uh, kind of thuggish, brutish stuff that was going on in Afghanistan for... Sounds like everything Matt Ho told us about in the last episode. (laughs) Yeah. They also appear to be prepping, preparing for a major battle, transporting huge shipments of weapons from Tira Valley in the Khyber, Khyber Agency with unprecedented quantity and frequency. This coincided with a new wave of uh, families from arriving from the Khyber Agency and North Wazirstan. In part, this was triggered by the, the Pakistani Army Operation Khyber 1, which started in October 2014, and a subsequent Operation Khyber 2, which started in March 2015. So this was the um, big counterinsurgency I was talking about right. that um, Pakistan engaged in that pushed a lot of these refugees in. It took the local population several months to understand what their guests were actually up to. In May 2015, they woke up to the fact that the guests had changed their own flags to those of ISIS. Hmm. So they just now, put up this, those black flags with the scribble on it? Yeah. Interesting. Now, this is the interesting part. Residents of the valley remember ISIS-K's initial role as a period of great relief. They initially thought that ISIS-K was a pro-government force in a new garb and cited the group's commanders as stating that we are here to fight the Afghan Taliban and link to the Pakistani intelligence service. Their reaction to the ANSF made the new group of old fighters look even more benign to the residents who also cited the ISIS-K fighters are saying, we have nothing against government forces. Members of the ANSF, who had earlier gone home stealthy and fearing interception from the Taliban, started to roam freely in the area. Adding to ISIS-K's perception as less troubling than the Taliban was the fact that it provided its own food and shelter. The Taliban, in contrast, would request or take it from the residents. The only major policy change that affected people's lives was a ban on poppy cultivation and drug sales. An Afghan National Army soldier, we celebrated the coming of Daesh and the disappearance of the Taliban. We could come home and roam around with, without any fear of being stopped by the Taliban. In early, Ju- in early July 2015, however, things changed drastically and rapidly when a series of popular uprisings against ISIS-K kicked off with the support of the Taliban making a shift in the Taliban's approach towards its rival group, from passive resistance to head-on confrontation. So, um, what the rest of this goes on to say is that the conflict between the two groups was primarily about the um, distrust of each other's backers. Hmm. So 
we started this off talking about how um, the U.S. was. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Providing air support to the Taliban to fight ISIS. How much do these proxy forces really just base who they're fighting off who their state backers say to fight? I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. And it seems like it, like like their backers or who's propping them up seems to switch a couple times too. So it gets a little complicated. It's, um, it's very complicated. The way that I kind of always seen it is that these really violent militant groups that take power and seize power they they start fighting each other because they're kind of like rival drug cartels Mm -hmm. trying to control their territory Mm -hmm. but i think it goes deeper than just that i think a lot of it is just they know where their money comes from right and you know within those ranks you know there's there's people kind of directing them to do to do things so, um, so let me let me let me try and like boil it down to a couple sentences on what I think ISIS K is now that you've told me all about it, and you can correct me where I'm wrong. So they're they start off as these just regular people in that Khorasan area, you know, stretching across the different states that you were talking about, so Afghanistan and Pakistan and other places. And uh, the Pakistani government gets all spooked about things like Bangladesh, so they start creating all these madrasas, but then they go and attack them for some reason and then those people flee to Afghanistan as refugees kind of and then those people actually end up being not all refugees but like also some hardliner crazy people and then they form their own little group called ISIS-K they put up the flags and all that other stuff and and now they're kind of like welcomed by the Afghan people who were there because they were the Afghan people that were there didn't like the Taliban, but then, but then they became their ISIS and they do crazy shit. So I guess they don't like them anymore. And now the Taliban is fighting them because also, you know, these guys are like 
on their turf, so to speak. Am I, am I getting the basics of this right? There are a lot of them are Pakistani refugees from um, the large counterinsurgency um, that took place in 2014 and 2015, and they just started flying the ISIS banner. Hmm. In short. How about that? And, and they all and they all do the racket, the typical Afghani racket of like you know extortion and drug shit and kidnapping stuff like that. Yes. Okay. I think I. But got now it. they're kind of like the new pretext Things to stay engaged head there. Choppers. And now yeah. you know what's interesting. So there's kind of a lot of mixed messages messaging coming from the State Department about what exactly we should be doing in Afghanistan now since we're leaving. Mm-hmm. So there's all these articles like, man, how much do we want to cooperate with the Taliban right now? Mm-hmm. We know how politically unpopular it is to do that, but it probably would achieve some of our policy goals that we have. I mean, listen, the Taliban are suicide bombing pieces of shit. The Afghan Taliban like bombing schools, like they're motherfuckers. It's hard in a political sense to be like, okay, we're working with Tal- with the Taliban now. Because even mm-hmm. when the U.S. was working with moderate rebels in Syria, you know, they would call them moderate rebels, even though a lot of them had ties with Al-Qaeda. You can't really make that lie. You can't really moderate rebels. You can't moderate, be like, oh yeah, the Taliban are moderates now. Moderate because rebels. they also kind of serve another goal in terms of Iran. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like Iran likes the Taliban. Iran will probably have the worst consequences with the with the Taliban takeover. And I think a lot of Iranians are in a funny position because they view their foreign policy with a very anti-American lens. So, you know, they're probably like, ha, 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 ha. America's leaving with their tail behind their legs. Right. Now look at them. They think they're so tough. It shows that they'd never be able to invade Iran if they can't invade Afghanistan. It would embolden them in certain respect. But now Iran is going to, you know, I don't know what the relationship is going to be between the Taliban and Iran. The Taliban is under pressure to not be mean to the Hazar population there. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're mostly Shia. Right. But Iran doesn't have the same leverage they had that they did in the 90s with the Northern Alliance. Um, they don't Which have... is still going on right now, wildly. The Panjshir is still holding up. Yeah, there's still fighting going on. I don't know how much longer it's going to last, but I don't... I mean, they're, they're totally surrounded, so yeah. they just need to blockade them and wait. But I don't know how... It certainly doesn't seem like the Taliban are taking a stable country. I don't know how long they can hold on to this. They may have been able to take this, but, I mean, they have a lot of different personalities that they're going to have to govern and... If, and they have they're going to have zero to be experience very governing to keep this thing going. Yeah, they, I mean, they have zero experience governing. All they have is experience fighting, 
right? They can, if they pursue the wrong policies, they can really fuck things up for themselves. Mm-hmm. But going back to Iran, they're most likely going to have refugee problems. You know, if they have refugees of hardline Sunnis, that could be an issue too. Yep. Um, so I don't, I don't think that they're very happy about this. I think it's going to be a net loss for them in the in the foreign policy realm. Yeah, I mean, I, when we were talking about you know the fall of Afghanistan a couple episodes ago, and I was relating it to the Vietnam War, you know, uh, a big problem that came out of the North taking over control. Uh, after the U.S. pulled out was the refugee problem, and that really destabilized the region a lot. Like, it was it was pretty bad. So, and, and, and we're talking about, like, southern Vietnamese people. Like, I wouldn't necessarily characterize them as, like, militants, right? <laughs> but if you start getting some hardline, as you said, hardline Sunnis crossing the border, might be a problem for, you know, the, the area in general. It's nuts. It's yeah, it's very foggy. Um, do you want to jump on to our next topic? Yeah, sure. Um, I wanted to talk about Ethiopia for a bit. It's been like a year almost since we talked about them last. Um, and uh, I was just like, they're still fucking fighting. You know, the Tigray crisis is still going on. And yeah, that hasn't seized up. That's still that's still going on. No, that's we just that's haven't ten- been talking about it. 10 months in the making, you know? So I guess the new the new thing that's happening right now is that um, there's a pretty, you know, effective blockade going on uh, in the Tigray uh, region right now, um, even though the uh, official Ethiopian government denies it. Um, so, you know, like I said, there's been over 10 months of fighting between the federal army in Ethiopia and, you know, uh, and the Tigray rebel forces, which has obviously left a lot of people, you know, uh, in harm's way, uh, specifically civilians who are right now at this point in desperate need of assistance, like food and medicine and all kinds of stuff. Um, and before I kind of jump in the meat and potatoes of this potential crisis here, I, I want to just give you a quick run through of the backstory of what's going on in, in Ethiopia. Uh, it'll be the short version. So if you really want more information, you can you know, scroll back to November of last year when we did an episode on Ethiopia to kind of get the full story. But uh, the short version is that uh, last November, on November 4th, uh, the Ethiopian Prime Minister uh, Abiy uh, Ahmad uh, launched a uh, military offensive against uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF, uh, which is basically the, the governing authority uh, in the northern Ethiopian region of Tigray. And uh, the TPLF allegedly did like some, you know, nighttime assault on, you know, a major Ethiopian uh, national defense force base in Tigray. Uh, And that resulted in the killing of some non-Tigrayan soldiers. So in other words, you know, federal soldiers. Uh, And they tried to loot a bunch of heavy artillery and uh, weapons and other equipment. Um, This is all allegedly, you know, depends on who you ask. Um, But... There's been, as a result of this, a ton of civilian casualties. Uh, good numbers were kind of hard to confirm early on because they, the the Ethiopian government actually put in uh, an internet and a phone blackout uh, at the time for the entire Tigray region. I couldn't figure out if that is still in effect or not. Um, 
So jury's out on that one. But um, basically the, the, the Council of Representatives in, in Ethiopia also imposed a state, a state of emergency in Tigray, uh, which basically isolated it from the rest of Ethiopia. Um, but in case you were feeling bad for Tigray uh, and the Tigrayans, uh, it's kind of complicated. Um, so the Ethiopian government has labeled them a terror organization, the TPLF at least, specifically. And, you know, the, the thing about this is that, like a lot of the countries that we have been talking about, like Afghanistan as an example, or Pakistan, Ethiopia is also an extremely diverse nation, and, and they've basically kept it together for decades under a kind of coalition that's made up of four major ethnic-based um, parties. It's called ethnic federalism. Exactly, exactly. So it's an, it's uh, the Ethiopian People's Re- Revolutionary Democratic Front, or the EPRDF. I'm, I'm not going to say that again. But yeah, it's ethnic federalism uh, is the, the word for what they're doing over there. And the thing that you need to know is that the TPLF, the folks in the Tigray region, they've... Um, They've basically held power for decades uh, since they took power, you know, um, in 91, despite having a small population relative to the other three ethnic-based parties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I'll add some. So, like, the Tigray are, like, 6% of the population, and then mm-hmm. the Aroma, and then the Amara, and then Somalis are— right. the, the, high, the the largest population is the Aroma and the Amara. Aroma, right. The Amaras. Mm-hmm. I don't know who—I think the Aroma are a little bit bigger— um, yeah, we, we go through wise. all the numbers and, and things but, like that in the other episode last year. Yeah, time, so. but there, so in Ethiopia, there's basically these four political parties that um, that are that are completely on ethnic lines. Mm-hmm. So there's the TPLF, who are who were the dominant force for a really long time. They're the ones who toppled the communist government, their communist dictator back in 1991. Right. So. They led the coalition. The the TPLF led the coalition and um, essentially, I guess, liberated Ethiopia from, from um, communism. <laughs> from you know their communist dictator, uh, right. like Colonel Mingu- Mingustu or something like that. I don't remember I don't his name. Colonel Mingus Mingak. I'm not even gonna. I'm gonna not even try to remember it because I'm gonna butcher it. Um, but. I guess a lot of claims have been, and man, when we did this episode on Ethiopia a while oh, back, it was, I got some of the craziest comments or some of the craziest messages I've ever received from doing right. the podcast. Positive and negative, actually. It was so polarizing. It was so, it was so weird because people would reach out to me and they'd be like, fuck the T-grade, fuck the T-grade. They're at like, like they've looted our country. Like everyone's a dog very venomous hate i was like whoa yeah it's like we we like <laughs> what <laughs> we calm uncovered down. a can of worms that calm. we didn't didn't even know existed yeah like calm down about that uh yeah. just just think about what you're gonna say right now <laughs> but um yeah like the, the tplf you know they've been accused of uh, being very discriminatory towards some of the other ethnic groups there and I don't know how many ethnic groups there are in Ethiopia. I, it's like what eighty or ninety different groups. It's a lot. It's it's so, lot. It's, it's so many, and you know, there's so many nuances and and things that we don't understand. It's like Afghanistan. Like a lot of the, these countries are. I mean, all most African countries are so big. They're so large. They encompass just so much land. 
Um, so there's just a lot of different peoples. There's a lot of different people. There's a lot of different cultures. Right. In kind of, kind of going back to the root of that. I mean, like I know that there have, there's a lot of nasty, you know, accusations about the Tigray, but I think one thing that's obvious to everyone was that they definitely held a position of power that wasn't commensurate to, you know, the population of Tigrayan people, right? You mentioned that they were only like something like 6% of the population and they certainly weren't the largest ethnic group there. But just like, you know, here in the United States where every state in the United States gets two, you know, um, Senate members, regardless of their size, in, you know, Ethiopia, it's the same way. So each of the major parties get an equal say, uh, so to speak, in terms of representation. And so as a result, what we see is a small minority of people holding the same amount of political sway and power in government in Ethiopia as, you know, uh, parties or, or groups of ethnic peoples that are many times larger than them, right? So already you can kind of see a political disparity that's clear, right? Um, all of the other accusations, whether they're, you know, accurate or not, are kind of irrelevant because you can you can already see where the imbalance of power was. And what that turned into, it just kind of bubbled up into this populist revolt because, you know, this current prime minister that we have now, Abby, he, you know, he ran on a broader nationalist platform. Now, he, he is also an Oromo um, by origin, and so he's part of the, lar- the the country's largest ethnic group. But, you know, his his agenda was less ethnic-based and more nationalist-based. Um, and, you know, a lot of people in the current climate in Ethiopia were behind him on that. Um, but uh, a nearly equal amount of people uh, were not. You know, a lot of the smaller ethnic groups, uh, not just the, the TPLF, but, you know, many others as well, saw this new kind of nationalist agenda as a threat to them because it, uh, you know, according to them, you know, it removes their right to self-rule, including secession, uh, which is, by the way, granted by the Ethiopian constitution to, you know, these ethnically organized regions. So technically speaking, you know, by by the constitution of Ethiopia, if Tigray wanted to leave, they could, right? So the, the, the problem that we run into is Abiy reorganized this rule and kind of got rid of it. And that caused some problems. And the TPLF really didn't like a lot of these changes. So they end up countering by breaking off and kind of trying to form this new government coalition with other smaller ethnic groups. And they try to launch an attempt to basically like make a little civil war uh, against the the, the Federalist uh, coalition. And so, you know, Tigray, uh, another big part of this is that uh, Tigray is super uh, suspicious about this very recent development between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Uh, so they're like brokering kind of a peace agreement, um, which included a promise by Abiy, the prime minister, to basically honor a, uh, a United Nations ruling on the demarcation between the borders between Eritrea and the region of Tigray. Said another way, parts of Tigray that are under Tigray control, you know, and and kind of de facto recognized as Tigray, but maybe on paper not recognized by the United Nations, you know, is in Eritrea, right? And that they're 
you know, their, their border is too big, you know, that's not recognized by the United Nations. And, and Abby is buddy-buddying up with Eritrea, so now Tigray's like, well, shit, they're going to give away our land. So they have reason to be pissed off in certain ways, but also, you know, they basically, and this is all allegedly, right? We don't have very hard evidence about this, but the, you know, if you ask the federal government of Ethiopia, they've basically set up insurgencies uh, of smaller ethnic groups to cause trouble and, and kill people, frankly, in Ethiopia. So it's, it's kind of a crazy story. Uh, if you want more details about it, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to our episode last um, last November, November 2020, on the uh, issue because it's still going on 10 months later. So if you want to learn about it, it's still relevant. Um, so kind of back to the original story that I wanted to start with. Um, there is a f- famine happening, apparently, right now. And the UN estimates that 5.2 million people need urgent assistance. And they're also saying that this could be a record-breaking famine. And it really makes me wonder, like, how this might compare to the situation in Yemen. Um, Because, obviously, Yemen is arguably one of the worst famines, you know, in decades themselves. Um, But in in the past, uh, the government has been denying that it was blocking aid to the Tigray region. But it did say that it was concerned about security, which I read that as like a dog whistle for a blockade, right? We're concerned about security, but we're definitely not doing a a blockade. Um, A spokesperson for the government said that the number of checkpoints between, you know, the regions has actually been reduced. But what's interesting is that inside of Tigray itself, the ability to move stuff around has been getting better. But the problem is that they're not able to get new trucks into the region so there's a lot of logistics and a lot of bureaucracy that are basically turning into this this into like a de facto blockade. And a lot of these aid workers that are working in the Tigray region say that they need like something like a hundred trucks with provisions to come into Tigray every single day in order to keep up. But not a single truck has gotten through since late August. So this is turning into a bit of a problem. Uh, because evidently, a lot of these aid agencies in the Tigray region have run out of food to distribute in most of the areas in the Tigray. And when people get hungry, that's when some violence ex- escalates. But yeah, so so there's a lot of conflict that's happening right here. And, and the, the longer the Tigrayan area region is is being blockaded and isn't allowed to get you know these these foodstuffs and these uh medicines the more conflict this is going to create you know in this in this 10 month long conflict that we're already seeing and i can't help but think like it feels kind of like yemen do you see those parallels henry are they not letting aid in or they're denying that so they're denying it for sure um, but they're saying some suspicious shit. Like I mentioned, they said that they're not blockading, but they're concerned about security. Um, so, you know, that sounds, like I said to me, like a dog whistle. Like, you know, they might not officially be blockading them, but they might be creating the conditions by which a blockade is in effect. Apparently, there's only one one way to get into uh, the Tigray region right now. And it's plagued by logistical issues 
and a lot of bureaucratic red tape kind of situation. And, and these aid workers are saying that the ones that are actually in Tigray are saying that we haven't seen a single truck come in since late August and they need a hundred trucks a day. So we're talking about, we're, we're at September 2nd. I think the last truck that they said came in around the 20th of August. That's like 10 days of, of nothing. And they're totally out of food. And, you know, this, this is pretty interesting too, because I'm not, not necessarily certain that this is totally related, but, you know, Egypt has recently been kind of ratcheting up their, you know, military muscle because they're having a dispute with uh, Ethiopia right now around the dam on the Nile River because that affects them downstream, you know, for their for their water supply. And they were even considering, I think we talked about this, um, you know, maybe hitting the dam, you know, with military strike. But right now, the, you know, Ethiopia kind of has their hands tied with fucking their own mini civil war that's going on kind of. And then on top of that, of course, you know, COVID-19 is still pretty bad there too. So, you know, shit, if I, if I were the folks in charge of Ethiopia, I'd, I'd be trying to get Tigray some, some aid ASAP because the last thing they need is just like a, you know, an explosion of conflict all at once. Yeah, I mean, I need to read more into what's going on right now because I just haven't really been following like the current conflict right now. But yeah, I mean, it's a ticking time bomb as far as uh, what the negative after effects can be, um, especially if they're alleged to be withholding uh, uh, humanitarian aid. That seems like um, it can turn into a lot of really nasty things. Yep. For sure. Well, speaking of withholding things, maybe we can turn to our next topic that's a little bit more lighthearted. Um, did you hear about how Chinese kids can't play video games anymore? Yeah, I saw that. There's, what, a limit, a three-hour limit for them to play video games? Is that what it is? <laughs> I, I, read the, I didn't read the actual story. I just saw the headline. Yeah, totally. Uh, so basically... China made a rule that went into effect this past Monday that says that kids under 18 uh, can't play video games for more than three hours a week. That's all they get. That's their quota. You heard about the one-child policy. Now you get the three hours a week policy. Uh, And the government apparently is saying that there's a growing video game addiction uh, among children and they describe it as, and I'm not even joking, spiritual opium, whatever that means. <laughs> um, what they describe opium. the video games as spiritual opium, or their policy is spiritual opium? No, the the video games themselves, and more specifically, the addiction to said video games. Oh, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they, I mean, what they're doing right now is they're going to limit them to playing one hour a day between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. and only on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And also, they threw them a bone and they said, okay, you can also play an hour at the same time from 8 to 9 on any public holiday. And when I read this, I'm like, wow, that's fucking crazy. But then I learned that apparently they've already had similar restrictions. They just tightened it up. So 
previously China had limited the length of time that like people under 18 could play video games to um, one and a half hours on any day and three hours on the holidays until 2019. I mean, excuse me, under the 2019 rules. So apparently since 2019, kids from the age of like zero to 18 could only play video games for one hour a day, uh, an hour and a half a day, Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday, and they can get three hours on holidays. And I didn't even know this, and I'm kind of not surprised, but also it's kind of fucking weird, you know? And, And apparently these restrictions are supposed to apply to any device like including phone games um and they're trying some weird shit to get this done so apparently gaming companies uh will be barred from providing services any kind of gaming services to minors in any form outside of those hours and those gaming companies are required to ensure that they have this I don't really understand it very well, but it's called real name verification systems where they can verify that, you know, who they are and whether or not they can play and at what times can they play. And I guess the reason why I'm talking about this is like, you know, why does it matter if Chinese kids can play video games or not? And obviously the answer is money. The Chinese games market is expected to generate something like $45 billion in revenue in 2021. And that's more than the United States. So this news is obviously creating a gaming-related stock plummet. And I'm obviously not a financial advisor, but maybe it might be time to buy some cheap stocks. Um, some some interesting ones, uh, one tech investment company called Prosys, they own a 29% stake in the Chinese social media and gaming company called Tencent. Uh, they were down 1.45% on Monday, uh, while other gaming companies like Ubisoft and and Embracer Group, they both fell over 2%. And then another Chinese listed company, NetEase, fell over 6%. So a lot of money bleeding dry. I think it's crazy. Um, And my only question here is how the hell are they going to pull it off? Yeah, how would they track that? It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. I mean... Evidently, they're they're gonna force gaming companies to say, like, if you want games in our country, 
you have to put these like name verification systems in place and like age verification it's just kind of like a like another stack on top of like the chinese like surveillance state just local like so the when ubisoft what game does ubisoft make it's like famous Rainbow who makes Six? call of duty uh call of duty is activision or treyarch i think so when activision localizes a game for the chinese market they're gonna have to localize it to include like if you want to play the game you have to like sign up and you have to like put in you have to go through a real name verification process so I, I suppose you have to put a real name in there and it has to be like cross-checked against, I guess, China's list of names, right? And if you happen to be under 18, then evidently the game is supposed to lock you out of playing and you can only play for one hour a day on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Hmm. Maybe that's not such a bad law. Well, you know, if you're, you know, if you're into gaming, you know, uh, especially like pro gaming... China's like you know competitive pro gaming is gonna take a major hit for this. Oh obviously, no! Obviously, all the kids are the ones. You know, like that's a huge gonna be that's a huge national problem for China. Yeah, they're not they're gonna be able to compete game. in gaming. They're like not this. gonna turn out as many pro gamers. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of like a small and I guess largely inconsequential. They're not gonna thing. master the shortcuts to master StarCraft. <laughs> I mean, it's that's a thing. I guess, you know, a lot of people are saying like they're, well, they're just going to use their parents' accounts or some shit like that, which I guess is the workaround, but this is more like a twofold thing. It's kind of geopolitical in the sense that like there's a huge market in China and they're growing and now, you know, we're talking about a $45 billion, you know, uh, a year market for video games uh, and that's probably going to plummet. So that's interesting and there's going to be like you know ripple effects right just because it's hurting the gaming industry doesn't mean it doesn't affect everyone like there are unintended consequences of of tanking stocks like that um and so there's that one and then the other one is just just that this is kind of like a new iteration a new reflection on the chinese like surveillance state right we were talking about like you know uh social credit scores and you know facial recognition software that like knows you everywhere you go and knows everything that you do um and now can't play video games <laughs> if you're under 18 uh so you know it's funny there's another there was another chinese law that um effectively banned um like tutoring these like tutoring school um services yeah these tutoring services and right. um, I forget the exact reason why they did do that. I think it may have been to do with like some kids getting an unfair advantage. I forget their exact reasons, but they banned these school, these like uh, extra schools, extracurricular shit. Yeah, that, that seems counterproductive. Uh, <laughs> all those, all those stocks. You know, th- those companies did really well, and mm-hmm. all those stocks plummeted. They basically put them out of business, but. China has been making some very bad decisions lately as far as like bad financial ones. Yeah. A lot of really dumb financial decisions. I don't know what's going on there as far as um, who's making these decisions and why I feel like they're 
kind of sucking up to what they want to be the the uh, like nationalistic type stuff rather than free and smart policies that will benefit their economy. Well, I think maybe to, to tie this back to Afghanistan, you know, if they're going to be if these kids are going to be lacking on spiritual opium, maybe they can make up for it with the regular opium that the Taliban will sell to them after they take full control. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Going back to just regular old opium, the regular old opium. All right. There's one more story you wanted to cover, right? The Yeah. Yeah. And I'll make this one quick. Because this is this is interesting kind of recap. We haven't talked about um, North Korea in a while, so I thought I'd bring this one up because this one hit my radar uh, just this past, I think it was like last week. Um, but North Korea apparently turned on one of those reactors again, the nuclear reactors. Um, so a report came out, an annual report by the uh, UN's atomic watchdog, and it said that North Korea apparently has restarted a nuclear reactor that is believed to be producing plutonium for nuclear weapons. Yay! We're going to start this one up again. So apparently recently, uh, since like early July of this year, there have been some increased signs of use. Specifically, they've been able to notice through satellite imagery um, like these uh, this Yon, Yongbyon facility, which is the nuclear facility, they were discharging a bunch of cooling water uh, which apparently has something to do with increased activity uh, in nuclear production at these facilities. And I don't think I need to say this, but obviously turning on a nuclear reactor could mean the ability to produce more nukes. And that's what the UN Atomic Watchdog is basically warning us about. There were also uh, some interesting report uh, in, in this report that said that there was indications of mining activities at a uranium mine. Uh, and plant at Pyongyang, and uh, that activity um, was also uh, coupled with some additional activity that they spotted at a uh, facility in Kangsan that is evidently a it's a suspected covert enrichment facility. Um, and so, you know, all these scientists are, you know, postulating at this point uh, that North Korea currently has the capacity to produce materials for four to six bombs a year. And obviously take that with a grain of salt because the intelligence is sparse. They don't have people on the ground or anything like that. And they're literally just looking at them with the satellites. But on Monday, on Monday, uh, they went to the report and they said that this quote underscores the urgent need for dialogue and diplomacy. So I don't know, maybe we'll go see Biden go shake Kim Jong-un's hand in the next few months. Maybe, maybe not. But if you remember back in 2019 in that summit in Vietnam, Kim Jong-un actually offered to dismantle this exact facility that, that they just turned on again uh, in Yongbyon um, for ex- in exchange for some sanctions relief. And Trump rejected it because he said that Yongbyon was just one nuclear program. It wasn't enough to warrant loosening any sanctions. Uh, so... Biden's administration actually said it reached out to the North Koreans to talk, but apparently Pyongyang has no interest in um, chatting with Biden uh, without a change in policy. So I guess no handshakes anytime soon. You know, we're on a bit of a roller coaster here. I mean, my take is that Kim Jong-un is probably just building up his bargaining chips to test out the Biden administration. 
it might also be that he's you know feeling emboldened with you know the uh, the response to pulling out of Afghanistan and kind of the blunders there. You know maybe he's feeling strong, um, but but North Korea does this every couple of years. They build up, they saber rattle a little bit, and they you know they do this so that they can get aid or sanctions relief or food or something like that. And then the cycle repeats every couple of years because nobody actually tries to solve the problem. And I know I'm oversimplifying this, but you know it's it's extremely complicated. But I think the problem is just not going to fix itself. And you know if we just keep doing the same dance over and over again, you know nothing's going to change. So I don't know. Time to try something new, I guess. What do you think? Well, I mean, they do this because they want to negotiate these weapons away. Um, I think that's why they had the nuclear program to begin with. Uh, mainly not because they're realistically going to use it. It's because they want to, they want to be able to bargain these weapons away in exchange for some type of sanction relief. And yeah, I think I agree with you. They're probably, he's probably uh, testing what Biden will do to see what they, what options they have as far as being invited or getting back on the table. Um, But I think that's really, I think, you know, the, the plan to negotiate with North Korea is really um, going to be more something that South Korea is going to have to negotiate because they're the ones who are usually um, streamlining this. And, um, you know, President Moon of South Korea was a big reason why they um, got so far. So, so I guess there's like a willing on their part to, you know, try to reinstitute some type of uh, peace deal because they made a lot of progress over I mean the progress doesn't seem big now but I mean they um, essentially demilitarized parts of the border and you know they had uh, photo shoots and you know they um, had a joint I think it was a hockey team in the Winter Olympics <laughs> yeah, yeah so I remember that I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem, it seems small, but they did make a lot of progress. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they should be trying to build on that progress now, even if it means like, okay, we have to treat Kim Jong-un like a world leader, or whatever. Well, we're already. Scratches back a little bit. We're already potentially going to work problem with the Taliban, with that? so. <laughs> what's, what's the big problem with that? Like, right. what the other option is just continue the status quo where you have this guy who, can launch nukes into space if he wanted to and um, a very impoverished uh, population and you know there's no military solution to North Korea even without their nukes they still have South Korea held hostage with their conventional artillery that they have Mm -hmm. on the DMZ so it would behoove them to um, you know try to get a deal back on table and you know a deal could have happened if it wasn't for John Bolton and the neoconservatives. That's right. Well, they ain't in right now, so that's like like I said, let's try something new. Let's let's see what we can do. Um All right. I'm tired as hell. Same. All right, <laughs> let's let's pack this one up. All right. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um it's been a long day.
If you like the show, make sure you rate and review the podcast. Um, That is the number one way to support our show. And uh, come listen to us next week. Peace. Peace.